You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name's Tyler Hindman. I'm part of the nursing education team in the emergency department, and I'm also an education fellow as part of the Education Hub. Today we have Dr. Elliot Long, a paediatric emergency physician working at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Elliot has recently completed his PhD on the topic of fluid resuscitation and sepsis. Today we'll be exploring his insights to navigating the tricky world of recognizing and managing sepsis while working in a busy emergency department. Hey Elliot. Hi Tyler, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, talk about sepsis. It's, it's one of my passions. Great. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, I'd like to ask, can you tell us what is sepsis and how does it differ in pediatrics? Okay, let's jump right in. <laughs> yeah, let's go for it. What is sepsis? Uh, so yeah, great question. Sepsis is uh, thought of and defined as any life-threatening infection. And I, I think as clinicians, we probably think of uh, sepsis as being severe infections that have some component of cardiovascular compromise. Uh, so meningitis is a life-threatening infection. Pneumonia is a life-threatening infection. But when do those two infections become sepsis? Um, probably when they start to involve the cardiovascular system. So causing hypotension, tachycardia, impaired perfusion, impaired organ perfusion. That's kind of where um, infections to single organ systems might be considered um, more along the lines of sepsis. And of course, primary bloodstream infections um, are, are also part of the core definition of sepsis. Great. Well, can you explain like what sparked your interest to study sepsis? Well, um, yeah, not a good question. So I think working on the floor in emergency, um, there's there are a lot of kids that come in with febrile illness, and it's really difficult to differentiate self-limited viral infections um, from early sepsis. And so one of my first um, clinical questions was how to go about differentiating those two infections and knowing what the likely course of illness was going to be for kids that might go on to have, uh, you know, more obvious um, signs or symptoms of, of sepsis. And uh, so recognition was the first question. And the second question I, I had was about our early treatments. You know, clearly antibiotics we think are really important in sepsis and that they uh, probably improve outcomes if they are if they're given early. Um, but most of the other therapies, um, specifically looking at circulatory therapies, uh, there isn't a really good evidence to support one over another. And in particular, fluid resuscitation, it's very um, difficult to know how much fluid, uh, how quickly to give it, what fluid. Um, and the evidence that has developed over my clinical kind of practicing life is, is uh, strongly supportive of fluids having some harmful effects mm -hmm. and so getting the balance right is is really tricky and that and i think that in, any clinician working on the floor has those questions how how should i best manage the circulatory component of sepsis uh, with fluids and or inotropes and which what's the balance uh, between the two great well what would the major anxiety be from clinicians that are not familiar with pediatrics what are the main things that they they want to know that in your experience yeah i think I th again i think most clinicians on the floor not just people that don't see kids a lot but people that do see kids a lot um is trying to pick the the, the needle in the haystack kind of thing mm. um the one kid that has sepsis amongst the hordes of kids that have self-limited viral infections um 
again, it's a it's a very common, probably, you know, a quarter of the kids we see overall in emergency have a febrile illness. That's the primary reason that they come to hospital. Mm -hmm. Their parents are anxious for one reason or another. Do they have the meningococcal, uh, that kind of thing? <laughs> um, and as clinicians, that's also at the forefront of our minds. Is this is this kid with a fever that looks snotty and you know a little bit miserable, is tachycardic, poorly perfused? Um, is that is that kid just viremic? And in an hour, they're gonna be bouncing around the department, eating you know McDonald's or potato chips. Mm. Um, or is this the, the kind of kid that in an hour is going to be obtunded and in recess and getting fluid resuscitation and, uh, you know, contemplation of inotropic support? So um, so that kind of clinical question about um, how do we recognize early sepsis amongst the vast majority of kids nowadays that actually don't have severe illness uh, with, when they present with fevers? Yeah, well, I mean... I guess in our emergency department, we see around about 250 a day. And, you know, it's so high, hard to, um, so easy to miss actually that um, with that high presentation turnover. Um, also, if you're in a hospital that's not geared up for um, pediatrics as well, that can also throw a spanner in the works. Do yeah. you agree with that? If yeah, for sure. yeah, I think so. I think mainly because um, in a pediatric center, you rely on a lot of, um, I guess just parts of the infrastructure that are that provide some safety. Um, people have experience and familiarity with children, um, and experience and familiarity with recognizing severe illness. Mm. Um, and I guess one of the real take homes for me from kind of having a special interest in sepsis is that clinical gut uh, gut feeling or clinical gestalt is extremely important. Um, the the child that looks unwell probably is unwell. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is that most kids with fevers have abnormal vital signs. So if you rely on tachycardia or uh, prolonged capillary refill or uh, kind of objective markers of uh, severe disease, which, which are all kind of part of this systemic inflammatory response criteria, the SERS criteria, um, about 90% of the kids that we see that have fevers meet SERS criteria for sepsis. Mm -hmm. So although those are objective criteria and they're um, important considerations, particularly, I think, in centers, as you mentioned, that don't see children often, um, they're very, very poorly predictive of kids that actually have sepsis. And the best prediction and the, the actual kind of you know, diagnosis of sepsis is, is really a clinical one. It's made by clinicians who think yeah. the child looks unwell. Mm -hmm. um, and that is very difficult to, to, to kind of objectify or to kind of um, put numbers around or to um, make in, put into clinical guidelines and that kind of thing. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's kind of like your clinical opinion, your clinical gestalt is actually what makes the diagnosis of sepsis. It's like, it's like other clinical diagnoses like Kawasaki's disease, although you know, that, that may have more objective clinical criteria, uh, but again, is a clinical diagnosis. Yeah, it's not a binary um, thing is it uh, well that, that's a great <laughs> yeah that's a great point um tyler because um sepsis is probably in addition to having the 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 acute recognition of sepsis uh on initial presentation there's also uh you know factors like course over time um response to treatment um and the results of blood tests that may become available um over the first few hours of, of therapy that all contribute to uh, our our opinion and the degree of 
unwellness of the child. Mm. So failure, failure to respond to treatment yeah. uh, or abnormal blood tests that might signify organ dysfunction mm. um, are all poorly poor prognostic features. And they're not immediately available. You know, that, that, that's the, the test of time and, and blood tests take time to come back. Yeah. Um, and they're really good tips about sort of um, recognizing those subtle signs of sepsis. Um, I guess we can be reassured that it's, you know, it's the clinician making the, the call. So, you know, you may not have the infrastructure um, at the centres that you do work at, whereas other, uh, other, other type of presentations may need those resources. Say, like, if you're working with a trauma or something like that, that means uh, you need the equipment and the personnel and the resources to manage that. But something like sepsis, you know, it's very unlikely you don't have access to antibiotics and that you don't have, you know, uh, yeah. it's probably the hardest thing would be um, if you don't have somebody doing regular um, vitals and numbers and uh, recognizing that deterioration, that would be quite difficult. But I think, yeah, if you, if you get onto it early, um, no matter where you are, you can manage this. Yeah, I think... Um Probably one of the underrated or underrecognized methods for evaluating febrile children is actually observation over time and serial observation. And that's what we use every day in clinical practice uh, to help differentiate self-limited viral infections from sepsis. Um, so I'll give you, you know, an example. Kids that come in with abnormal vital signs, tachycardia, looking unwell, prolonged capillary mm-hmm. fever, um, but our clinical gestalt is that they're not that unwell. They've got maybe, you know, snot pouring out of their nose or they've got a cold. We think this is probably a viral infection. It's probably not severe and they can probably be observed for an hour, mm. analgesed, observed, and then reassessed. And over that time, if their heart rate settles, if their uh, capillary refill improves, if they their conscious state improves and they're basically back to their normal selves we're clinically reassured that this child is not at the early stages of sepsis they're they're kind of look that that unwell look is um changing over time and fluctuant and yep. therefore they're probably safe to discharge without antibiotics without any tests and with a diagnosis of a self-limited viral infection if over that period of observation they remain tachycardic or their heart rate uh worsens gets faster and they start to look more unwell then uh, that period of observation is extremely valuable because you've caught the kid that presented with early, you know, potentially early sepsis uh, that was very difficult to di- differentiate from any other child that presents with self-limited viral infection. Um, so serial observation over time is an extremely important tool. It's not a fancy blood test. It's mm-hmm. not a CRP or a procalcitonin or anything like that, but it, it's a, an extremely important tool for the early evaluation of children that you suspect may have sepsis. Yep, recognizing and escalating, um, that's actually the real skill that we're looking at here. It's not putting in cannulas and um, doing all those other invasive tests or anything like that. Yeah, which as clinicians is what we (laughs) tend to worry about. Oh, I'm not going to be able to get a drip in that neonate or whatever. But, uh, you know, the most important tool is actually observation over time. Yeah, great. Well, thanks for clarifying that. Um, Particularly in our population, we're very lucky to have um, highly um, vaccinated population as well and that helps with your hedging your bets around making sure that this is being more reassured that it's not sepsis that's absolutely right if you look at the prevalence of sepsis in our population it's very very low and the prevalence of bad outcomes from sepsis are very very low uh, mortality from sepsis is very very low so mm-hmm. um, you know if we were to be giving this talk in another setting where 
um, children are either not vaccinated or have, you know, poor access to healthcare um, and present later in their illness course, or just sepsis is more prevalent in the community, um, we'd be having a very different conversation. Yeah. And that's why translating kind of the results of sepsis studies between countries that have very different rates of prevalence and severity of disease is can be very difficult. And the fee study is, is a real prototypical example of that, where this is a study conducted in sub-Saharan Africa, huge numbers of children, you know, over 3,000 children enrolled uh, with, with severe disease, severe sepsis, but a lot of them have other things, malaria um, and meningitis, pneumonia. And the results of that study were showed that uh, fluid resuscitation was harmful when compared to standard care, which was just to administer maintenance fluids in that population. And one of the, or many of the criticisms raised at that study are related to translating the results to a right. higher resourced, higher income country where there are organ support therapies and where the prevalence of sepsis is a lot lower in the community. And unfortunately, the result of that difference in prevalence and severity of disease has meant that it's really difficult to know how to apply or translate those findings into the Western setting. Yeah, well, the beauty of research is that it's a building block and then you can take that into the metropolitan setting, which you may have done a small block for that future study as well. Yeah, absolutely. This is the kind of thing that's just crying out for a, for a study in, in the Western setting. Yeah. It, you know, it's kind of the tyranny of, of looking after more well patients that it becomes difficult to have outcomes that are important to clinicians and families that are sufficiently prevalent to show a, a difference yeah. in in those important outcomes. For example, mortality is so low in children with sepsis in, in Australia and New Zealand um, and, and any other Western country that doing studies with mortality as a primary outcome is, is almost impossible. Yeah. You need to have a, you know an, an inachievably high number of patients enrolled to show a difference in mortality. Um, what pathogens are we actually concerned about um, with sepsis? What things do usually the usual suspects? Uh, good question. So... The usual suspects, um, I guess, vary a little bit by age, but we're primarily talking about the neonatal pathogens, meaning that they're babies that have left and they're not newborns, but they've gone home and they're in, still in the first month of life. So they tend to have uh, slightly different pathogens than older children. So group B streptococcus, uh, E. coli, um, and then uh, some other things that are more common in older kids like staphylococcus and streptococcus. Mm -hmm. And then older kids, they're mainly skin organisms, staph and strep, uh, and some uh, E. coli in, in uh, children that are less than a year. Other things like Haemophilus influenza and meningococcus um, are, are very uncommon now because they're vaccine-preventable diseases, and in most places they mm -hmm. aren't that prevalent. And then, of course, there are some high-risk patient groups, for example, you know, patients with, with acquired neutropenia from cancer chemotherapy, patients with central lines, patients that are colonized with certain bacteria um, for one reason or another, um, who have specific risk of other pathogens, and their initial empiric antibiotic therapy re reflects that increased risk. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned those two populations, particularly the neonatal population and that um, oncology patient, usually that 10 days post-chemo. Mm. Another vulnerable group in our setting here in Melbourne. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it's it's actually <laughs> really interesting you mentioned that, Tyler, because we've just finished looking at how common it is for children with fever and neutropenia 
to have uh, to have bad outcomes and mm-hmm. and uh, you know surprise surprise it's actually very uncommon for for children with fever and neutropenia that present to ED to end up on inotropes to end up in ICU to end up on mechanical ventilation and that in some ways reflects the fact that often kids that are extremely vulnerable to infection are actually kept in hospital post chemotherapy mm-hmm. so they may actually uh, not present to emergency departments but also the current care that we provide is good enough you know we prioritize early antibiotics we prioritize you know these kids get high triage categories they get seen quickly Um, all those things work and prevent progression of disease Um, so what we're doing right now with some high-risk patient groups is working yep i'd also like to mention that that vulnerable group we can put in the and you've mentioned it lots earlier on about the child not responding to interventions so that deterioration over time so they you know automatically don't get triaged at a high category number because they have a high heart rate and a high fever if they're mm. you know immunized over the three month mark otherwise yeah. you know normally well um we got to remember the longer that you are in the emergency department um, you know, there are poorer outcomes as well. So you, yeah. you know, our model isn't set up for ongoing care, really. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's that's very true that emergency departments are not set up to recognize the deteriorating patient. Mm. This comes up time and time again at our M&M morbidity and mortality meetings, the patient that has, you know, worsening tachycardia, evolving hypotension, and is tucked away in the in the back corner of the department in a in a bay, you know, with, with very accurately documented worsening vital signs that nobody picks up on and you know because of that there are a lot of uh, safety measures that have been put in place to recognize the deteriorating patient help people to to flag patients that are getting worse over time like uh, you know what we use in in Victoria the Victor charts which have age-based vital sign thresholds that indicate when um, a patient's vital signs are becoming more abnormal for age so um, so those things are are protective in mandating clinical review if vital signs reach certain thresholds, even if it happens over time, not on presentation to hospital. I find it's really useful also to share and verbalize whether or not you're worried about a patient. So really good questions I like to ask would be, you know, are you worried about this patient? Because then if the clinician who's looking after them has been keeping it and not talking about if they are worried it gets everybody on the same page once i guess the sepsis word has been verbalized and that we're going down that pathway can you go down that just the sort of steps that we need to take um, managing a child when we've actually called it sepsis yeah you bet so a few kind of just preliminary points that it's very difficult to get in clinicians heads Mm, and know what they're thinking Um, and so you might be looking after a patient that you're extremely worried about or you might have not recognized or may not be worried about them at all and unless as you say unless you verbalize that to uh, the other people that are looking after that child as well um, the level of concern doesn't get spread around and and therefore small things that may have triggered an escalation of care may be may be missed so you might call that you know a shared mental model meaning i understand what you're thinking you understand what i'm thinking and if you know for example if this kid's heart rate remains above 180 in half an hour, let me know. We're going to start antibiotics. Yep. You know, something like that mm. um, gets everyone on the same page. So the second thing to say about starting a sepsis pathway is that um, as clinicians, for some reason, and I'm 
you know, a clinician and I fall into this category myself, we're extremely reluctant to label kids as having sepsis. Most of the kids that we treat for sepsis, meaning they come into hospital, they get IV antibiotics, and they get some type of circulatory support, one or more fluid bolus, an inotrope, something like that. Mm. They don't get labeled as having a diagnosis of sepsis. Yeah. The most common thing we label them with is acute febrile illness. <laughs> and sure, that makes sense, um, but it's a description. It's not a diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's like, you know, abdominal pain uh, is a description, not a diagnosis. Yeah. So that's just one thing to say that most of the kids we treat for sepsis don't get diagnosed with sepsis. Why is it important to label kids as having, or, or maybe it, maybe another way to look at this is why don't we label kids as having sepsis? And I think that relates back to this being a clinical diagnosis and the diagnosis may evolve or become clear over time. Right. And uh, perhaps as clinicians, we don't want to be overcalling things yeah. or have the you know, the perception that the next day on the ward round, people will be like, oh, yeah, they just admitted this kid to hospital for IV antibiotics and look at him now. He's like running around the department and looks like a million bucks. Yeah. So I think as clinicians, we don't want to be wrong with yeah. our diagnosis. It's this internal kind of... Um, yeah, our, our internal anxiety. Yeah. We're just inadequate. <laughs> um, and so... So why is it important to, to kind of label kids as sepsis? The, the reason for that is that, it again, it gets everyone on the same page. So we all have a shared model of, of, of care. And um, we showed this in our hospital when, when we kind of uh, started some quality improvement measures looking at sepsis. When people are on the same page and they know what the next steps in care are, those steps happen. And if they don't happen, then the patient's care gets escalated to somebody more senior. And it does happen. Mm. So that's why it's important to label kids with sepsis because then it gets everybody on the same page. We all know that we want to get IV access. We want to get antibiotics within half an hour. The nursing staff know which antibiotics and the dose. They can get them drawn up while the clinician's getting IV access. We know which blood tests we want. And we know that we want to give some type of circulatory support, usually in the form of a fluid bolus. Mm -hmm. So all that stuff's happening in the background. Even yeah. though as a clinician, all you're doing is looking for a vein, yeah. um, which you would be doing in a child that you label as an acute febrile illness, but all the stuff in the background's not happening then. Nobody's drawing up antibiotics. No one's getting a fluid bolus ready. No one's kind of, there's no heightened concern. So that's why it's important to, to put the label on children as, uh, as having a clinical diagnosis of sepsis have confidence in your clinical acumen, diagnostic acumen, and lose the anxiety about what people might say um, should the child end up not having, uh, you know, a positive blood culture and having a virus on their, you know, NPA the next day. Great. Well, I think you summarized really well, you know, the, the key components of sepsis. Have you got anything else you'd like anyone to, any take-home messages you'd like to share? Yeah, so I, I think probably... The one we've, we've kind of talked a lot about early recognition and, uh, you know, the difficulties differentiating sepsis from self-limited viral infections and um, that decision making about initiation of a sepsis pathway. And then the next step is really what components of the sepsis pathway are important, what should you prioritize and what kind of timeline should you look at for uh, delivering those therapies and for reevaluating re the patient. And I think in... You know, the take-home message for me really is that if you're worried about a patient, you should be sitting at their bedside while they get all their initial treatments and yep. until they start to show signs of uh, either responding to the therapies or improving on their own. Um, 
And so that means while you're giving antibiotics, while you're giving fluid bolus, um, you're sitting at the bedside uh, monitoring what, what their clinical response is. And probably the second thing to say is that, um, <laughs> this is my own kind of bias, but it's worth when you're delivering therapies for circulatory support and specifically fluid resuscitation to monitor both for beneficial effects and for the potential harmful effects, which are, which are, are probably under-recognized and erring on the side of, of being cautious with fluid resuscitation rather than flooding the patient with fluid. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and expertise. We really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks so much for the excellent questions. Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.